So one of the challenges that faces us as a church right now that we talk about sometimes in leaders meetings that we often strategize to find the right way to attack uh, is this. Uh, while we do have some children and some youth, some young adults, uh, some very gifted teachers to teach them, and even a few leaders willing to lead ministries like that, we don't have near enough of any of those things to build the robust and flourishing discipleship ministries that we want to build. The sort of things that we're seeing in our sister churches where they're just doing incredible things to disciple children and to disciple youth and young adults in the name of Jesus. Uh, I remember Emily and I once visited a nearby church who's doing a wonderful job administrating their children's ministries. Uh, we walked in because we like to see what churches around us are doing and how they do it, what we can learn from them. Uh, we walked in and as soon as you walk into the kids wing in this local church, uh, there's a massive Lego pit right next to you and the kids is the first thing they see and they run there and like all that separation anxiety that's there when kids are dropped off for the first time at a kids ministry not there at all because they see Legos and they run to them and I remember looking at that and thinking man you know something of that magnitude if we put all of our kids budget into it and a number of uh, volunteer hours into it uh, we could maybe do that and, and none of the other awesome things that this church is doing. Like, there's just no way that we have the power to execute these kind of things that other churches are doing. Uh, sometimes it gets over the top. One of my favorite preachers uh, was starting to get uncomfortable with just how big some of the ministry does as a church had gotten. And he started calling it a, a monster, like we built this massive monster. And at one point he quipped, uh, you know, guys, if this gets any bigger, our parents are going to have to scan their eyes in a retina scan to pick up their kids and their child's going to come down the slide to them with their favorite latte in their hand. Like this thing's getting so sophisticated. Uh, you know, that's the kind of stuff that's happening on one end. And then on our end, you know, we're just having trouble getting enough children in one class that they can all have friends their age to encourage them in the faith or just finding enough teachers to, uh, to teach the children in our church. And so that creates a challenge for us, which is we know we need to disciple our children and our youth and our young adults, and yet we can't imagine doing that without a program. It's the only way we can picture it happening. And we don't have the resources to do the programs that we want to do. So we're left in this place where we're asking ourselves, okay, one day we would like to build some really cool looking ministries for our youth and for our kids and for our young adults. But until then, one generation must commend the works of the Lord to another. Like we can't wait until we have all the cool stuff uh, to start discipling our kids in Jesus' name. So what are we going to do until then? How can we be faithful with the children we do have and the teachers that we do have? And that's the question that I think today's text goes a long way toward answering. There are two things that we can do until the day comes when I pray and many of us pray that we can build up uh, more robust ministries here. And one is to keep doing what we're doing, which is teach the children, youth, and young adults faithfully. Uh, for everything we're not able to give them, they are at least well taught, and we must continue to do that. The other one is something that's not normal here, but if we were to adapt it, uh, I think it would go a long way toward blessing our young people. And that is a culture of mentoring, a culture of one-on-one -on -one relationships where older Christians are training younger Christians in how to walk in the faith. The verse we're going to look at today gives us a window into what that relationship can look like. And it's in the Dear Titus section of the letter to Titus, chapter 1, verse 4 of the book of Titus. Let's look together to there and we'll read it. 
Paul writes to Titus and he says, to Titus, my true child and a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. The words of the Lord. Those words may not seem like much, but as is constantly happening in the Word of God, it can surprise you if you dig deep enough, you can always find gold in God's Word. And if we compare these words with Paul and Titus's long-term relationship that is told of in the book of Acts and in the letters to the Corinthians, and if we compare it to the rest of the material in this letter, we start to see that there is quite a bit of meaning just in Paul calling Titus his true child in a common faith and the blessing that he gives to him. What we find in these words, what we have here is a picture of a healthy Christian mentoring relationship. The sort of relationship that if there were many of them here at Calvary Baptist, I believe would serve our young people even better than robust discipleship programming would serve them. Though I do long for the day when we have big programs here. I pray God brings it. If we can just get everyone a mentor, that would serve them even better than a big program would. But we have a a window into what that relationship looks like here, and we're going to dig as deep as we can to find it, because I know that some of you are interested in mentoring, and some of you who are younger wish that you had a mentor or do have a mentor, and you're looking for a good picture of, okay, well, how do I do this? How do I do this well? If we get a good picture of it, set that in front of us, then we know what we're chasing after, and we're better equipped to do the Lord's work and to train those who are younger in our church. So these words give us first just a good definition even of what mentoring is, and then as we compare them to the details of Paul and Titus's life, they begin to give to us details about that picture of mentoring. A definition of it and then details. I'll give you the definition first. Uh, Mentoring is very simply when a mature Christian trains another Christian in how to follow Jesus one-on-one. It's that simple. An older Christian training a younger one. Someone who's been walking with Jesus longer, training one-on-one someone who has not been walking with Jesus as long. And there are three ways that we see that definition here in these words. The first is with the word that Paul chooses to use, my, my son, my true son, my true child, your Bible may render it, in a common faith. Now, why would Paul, who is certainly not of the same family as Titus, call Titus his son or his child? Some suppose that maybe Paul is the one who led Titus to Christ, and maybe that was the custom then in the church. Uh, We don't really have any history to back that up. We don't know that Paul was the one who led Titus to Christ. We don't know that that's how uh, those who led others to Christ would call those that they led to him. We do know this about the first century, though. Teachers and students would very often use father-son language to refer to each other. A Jewish student would call his rabbi father, and the father would call the student son. Jesus refers to his disciples as my little children. He says, I won't leave you as orphans. Or John writes, the apostle John writes to the churches, and he closes one of the letters, little children, keep yourself from idols. This is very commonly how students and teachers referred to each other as part of the, you could say, part of the first century education system. And as we compare that then with Paul and Titus' relationship and with the letter here, 
what we find is that Paul and Titus traveled to many places, and when they did, it was always Paul and Titus, never Titus and Paul. Titus was of great help to Paul. Paul was in charge. He was the apostle. He was the one teaching the next generation how to do ministry. And as they went along and Timothy followed, uh, I'm sorry, Titus followed Paul's orders and Timothy did the same as well, they would both learn what it was like to be in ministry, to be faithful to Jesus in ministry, to share the gospel to many, to preach, to shepherd, to do all sorts of things that ministers do. At one point, Paul sent Titus to Corinth to deliver a very sensitive letter to them, which may even be the letter of 1 Corinthians in the Bible. We don't know. And Titus did it faithfully, and then he came back and he gave good news to him. At this point, they have come to the island of Crete. Many have been left to the gospel there, been led to the gospel, but Paul must leave to go to the next place. And so he leaves Titus in charge of the churches to bring the churches to maturity. And then, before winter comes, Titus, if he can, is to leave and join Paul in Nicopolis. And Paul writes in this very letter here instructions on how to lead those churches. All along the way, Paul is the master, Titus is the apprentice, and now the letter comes and it's read publicly before the churches, and Paul says to them all, Titus is my true son, my true child in a common faith. In other words, this guy's my apprentice, and you'd better listen to him, church. My true child in a common faith. So that clarifies for us a few things. Uh, First, it clarifies that mentoring is not a peer-to-peer relationship. This is not two Christians who are about the same age, who have been following Jesus for about the same amount of time, getting together and having sweet fellowship together. Uh, When I was in college, it was uh, very encouraged to have what they called accountability partners. You found somebody else who was a college student like you. You met together regularly. You talked about the things of the Lord, and then you asked each other hard questions about the sin in their life so that you could confess to each other your sins, a godly thing to do. You knew that your accountability partner was going to ask you, have you and your girlfriend been pure? Have you been cheating in school? All those tough questions that college kids don't want to get asked. Well, that was a good thing, but it wasn't mentoring. Mentoring, no, is not two peers together, but an older and a younger, and one is very clearly training the other. Another window this gives us into mentoring is that when it happens, It is very clear and it is stated who is mentoring who. So it's not just that one is older and one is younger. It's that that truth is out there in the open. Uh, The mentor is not trying to avoid making the disciple feel like a project. No, it's out in the open. You're my project. I'm working on you. And that can inform those of us that attempt to mentor others. Sometimes it's tempting to be coy about it, right? Because you don't want to insult somebody and make them feel like they don't know as much as you. So maybe you can just try to cast this thing as a peer-to-peer relationship and uh, try to get by until they figure out that you're actually mentoring them. No, that's not the way to do it. You don't want the ideal is not for them to never figure out that they're your project. The ideal is for them to know and be okay with the fact that they're your project, for them to trust you enough that they're okay being your project, for them to trust you enough that you could say something like, you are like a daughter to me, and that not be weird because they know you and trust you, that you could say, you are a son to me, 
And that's not weird because they know you and trust you well. That's the ideal that we try to get to in those sorts of relationships. And if every young person in our church, every high schooler, every college-age student, every young adult, even every young parent in our church had something like this in their life, had an older Christian who they knew was invested in their life, who took interest in them, who was taking initiative to call them and take them to coffee and read the Bible with them and do projects around the church with them, how much that would do for our students, for our young adults, and for our parents. Can you see how that would benefit their lives even much more than a great program ministry would if the older in our church would simply take interest in them individually and pour into them? Oh, how good that would be. So that's what it is. It's very clearly when an older Christian trains a younger Christian intentionally, clearly, one-on-one, as Paul did to Titus for much of their lives together. We also get in these words and the surrounding context some details that fill out the picture of mentoring that help us to understand it a little better. And the first one is uh, that they often work together. Often, in fact, the work of ministry or the work in the marketplace can lead to a mentoring relationship, which can lead to more work together, which can lead to mentoring together. The way that you see that is in the same way, one, Paul calling Titus my son, my child, right? He is teaching him. Well, what is he teaching him? The work of, in Paul's case, an apostle, or in Titus's case, probably an evangelist. You read the rest of the letter and what you find are instructions in how to do the work of ministry. There is work to their relationship. You look back in their history together and it's a history of working together. What was the context where Paul continued to teach Titus? It was in the context of doing the work of ministry together. And so it often is in mentoring relationships. You don't have to do work together. I mean, it's enough to just meet for coffee and go over the Bible uh, and study it together. That works. But often when you have a project to do together, that makes you closer, and that builds up the trust together. And then when you get to the Bible together, you have things to talk about because you have questions that ministry has brought up for you. And so it often goes. I know that some of the young guys that I do work with here in the church, uh, it's a combination of doing work together and studying the Bible together and pouring into them as best as I can. When we needed to renovate our sound system, I found two guys who were interested in it and who I felt had a lot of potential if somebody would pour into them and teach them the Word of God one-on-one. They were getting it in their classes, they were getting it other places, but one-on-one I wanted to give it to them. And so we got together, we would study the Bible for about a half hour together, and then we'd go in the sanctuary and do some work on that sound system, and hand-in-hand the two were, studying and working together. Uh, And that's continued to build and develop, and I'm convinced that one is feeding the other, the work and the study are feeding each other. Not only that, but I tried to think this week of any of these mentor-type relationships in the Bible that weren't also ministry-working relationships, and I can't think of one. Moses and Joshua, they did the work of ministry together. Uh, Elijah and Elisha, they were prophets together. Paul and Timothy, Paul and Titus, Barnabas, and like half of the apostles, they all did work together. That didn't mean it has to be done that way, but there is wisdom in that pattern there. And that means something if you are looking to find someone to disciple yourself. One of the best ways you can find it is in the work that you are doing. 
If you're part of a committee or you chair a committee or you do a lot of work in the building or you do a lot of work with music, one of the easiest ways to find somebody whose life you can invest in is to first recruit them to the work. Say, hey, I'm, I'm doing this thing in the building. Why don't you come with me to a younger person who you think may look up to you one day. And as you work together with your hands or as you work together to build a, a Bible lesson or whatever it is, you build rapport with each other and eventually that can turn into a mentoring relationship. Similarly, for those of you that are young and are thinking to yourself, man, for somebody 20 years older than me to take interest in my life and develop me in Christ, that would be awesome. Where can I find that? Well, one way you can often find it is in your service to the church. Find a committee to serve, find a group to serve alongside of, find people to teach, and do it alongside older Christians. And a lot of times that rapport can build through the work of ministry as it did for Paul and for Titus together. One of the best ways you can find a mentor is to be active in serving. Not a guarantee, but it's a good way to do it. A second detail we see about mentoring relationships that helps us to keep them in the right is that they are affectionate relationships. There is nothing cold about a grown man calling another grown man my true son, my true child in a common faith. When teachers would call their students that or students would call their teachers father, what was going on was they were taking uh, what can sometimes be a pretty cold and impersonal education system and they were bringing that family intimacy to it. You're not just a teacher to me, you're a father to me, right? You're not just a student to me, you are a child to me. And when two grown men talk to each other this way or two grown women talk to each other this way, there's a sweetness there and there's an affection that we would do well to emulate. I just want to commend to you the way that our Spanish-speaking brothers and sisters do this, even in the church plant that meets here. Uh, I was so struck the two weeks that we did our worship services together. You remember those two bilingual weeks when Paul and Misael were leading together and Ricardo and I were working to preach together? Uh, it struck me so much to be part of that work up here on the balcony together, and uh, it, it was difficult because... You know, in Spanish culture, there's a lot of closeness and a lot of intimacy, and we all had to stay six feet apart. And so that was really tough for all of us when we just wanted to hug each other. Uh, but one of the ways that I saw Pastor Ricardo overcoming that, and I think this is his habit and just what he does, is when he would give instruction to any of the volunteers or leaders there, he would always call them mio, which I hope I'm pronouncing correctly, which is Spanish for my son. And that would build up this closeness between them. It would be a term of endearment and affection. And as he would find one of them, he would say mio, and then he would give them, you know, very detailed and clear instruction, which he had the credibility to do because they knew that he loved them just in the way that he talked to them. It was a season where he couldn't hug them and shake their hands like he wanted to, but he was still talking to them with such affectionate words. And as we gather now in that parking lot and have lunch and we look over here and see that church worshiping together, you can see the affection in that church, even as they can't get close to each other like they long to do. We can learn something from that, we English speakers, because it's, uh, it's a little weird among English culture to call somebody your son or your daughter to say you're like a son to me. You're kind of going over a line when you do that. But how sweet it would be if we could find ways to communicate affection to those we were teaching like that. 
one of the ways we do that as a church is through physical greetings. Lots of hugs, lots of handshakes, lots of exuberance when we get to see each other as a church. And I just want to remind you, church, how sweet that is, uh, how, how wonderful it is that we do that because we can't do it right now, right? And a lot of times seasons like this can be seasons when habits are broken. Uh, but my word to you, church, is when we get back in the building, we probably still won't be able to be as affectionate to each other as we want. But one day the day will come, and when it does, we will have to be intentional to revive that culture of affectionate greetings, the kind of affection that you see Paul writing Titus here when he calls him my true son in a common faith. Let's have that kind of affection for each other as soon as we're able to do it again. One last detail that we get from this picture, and I think this is a profound one. Their bond is in the gospel, not in their similarity to each other. This is very important for mentoring. Now, we see this in the words that come right after my true son or my true child. What is it that is their bond? What is it that makes them father and son? Well, it's in the very next words, my true child in a common faith. It is their faith that brings them this close, that makes them father and son. And at first glance, you probably think, yeah, okay, of course, this is the Bible. This is Christianity. Of course, it's their faith. But there's actually more to it than that. We must remember that Paul is a Jew. He is what he calls a Hebrew of Hebrews. He's as Jewish as they get. And Titus is a Gentile. And we also need to remember that Paul is among the elite of Jews. He was a Pharisee trained at the feet of the probably the most well-respected Pharisee, next in line to be the great Pharisee and teacher of the day, elite of elite. And Titus was probably just a common Greek person who was trained in the faith. And so you would really be hard-pressed to find two men who are more different from each other, as Jewish as they come, and a common Greek man as high on the scale of Jewish elitism as they come, and a common Greek man who call each other father and son. And why could they do that? In a culture where people of different classes didn't associate with each other, in a culture where Jews and Greek had so much animosity toward each other and resented each other so much, even within the church, that at times they refused to eat together in the church. Even in this kind of scenario, Paul and Titus can call each other father and son. And why can they do that? Because of a common faith that they share. Now that is a picture of how the gospel can break down cultural barriers and make us say, it doesn't just have to be people like me that I spend my time with and that I mentor. This means that when we form these mentoring relationships, let's keep in mind that it doesn't just have to be people like us. Uh, your common bond is in the gospel. And so if you work in one profession and you want to mentor somebody in another profession, that cross-professional bond can be a powerful thing. If you look one way and you want to mentor somebody who looks completely different, and our culture says right now that you're supposed to resent each other and you're supposed to hate each other, the gospel can break down that bond and people who are so different from each other can form close, disciple-filled relationships where they can even call each other father and son. What a picture of the gospel that is. That's a reminder to us, even in our program ministries, 
that it is good to have age-graded ministries because children learn differently than youth and youth differently than adults and so on. And there are different challenges for different seasons of life. Those are good. But we should not form our Sunday school classes around, this is a class for people like us. We, We can't let that barrier be there because our bond is in a common faith. And each and every class ought to be open to people who are very different from them and ought to be structured in a way that welcomes people who are really different from us. That is the final picture and the final detail we get. And it's so amazing. I mean, in the world, I mean, the church isn't the only place where mentoring happens. In the business world, mentoring is very common. In the sports world, it's very common. The world mentors as well. But this gospel factor is what makes it different in the church. Only in the church do you find people who are so different from each other training one another in the faith. What I mean is that Michael Jordan is not going to mentor a French soccer goalie, right? They're just too different from each other. It's not going to work. Joe Biden is not going to mentor an up-and-coming Republican senator. It's just not going to happen in the world. But in the church, people who are of different political parties— People who look different from each other, people who think different from each other have a common bond in the gospel of Jesus. And those relationships can break barriers and form across all sorts of lines. And what a beautiful thing it is when it happens. So that's the picture that we get of mentoring in this verse. And I am convinced that if we would take it to heart and long for it here, and then those relationships begin to be formed here, what a great thing it would be for the young people in our church. We could say, we are training up these college students. We're training up these high schoolers, even the children, to walk in the ways of the Lord. We just keep teaching them faithfully as we are and add this mentoring element to it. What is it? It's when an older person, an older Christian trains a younger Christian in the faith. A mature Christian trains a younger Christian in the faith one-on-one. There's often a work element to it. It's often affectionate, and it sometimes happens even across cultural barriers because of the gospel. So, if the Spirit is working now in the way that I have prayed He would work, uh, there are some of you who are younger who are thinking, how can I get in on this? And some of you who are older in the faith, who are mature in the faith, who are thinking, you know, that would be a great way to spend the next several years of my life, just giving one Tuesday night a week to one particular young person. I'd love to do that. I hope that that's in your heart right now. And if it is, you've got practical questions, which I want to try to answer now as best as I can from the picture that's given in the Bible. The first question you might be asking is, who should do the mentoring in a church? Like, how old do I need to be? How far along do I need to be in the faith before I can start looking back and pulling others up to me? Well, it depends on how long you've been a Christian. But in the book of James, we see criteria for teachers, and I think the criteria would be the same for a mentor. And that criteria is simply Christian maturity, which is shown with control of your body, control over your tongue. It's not sinlessness, right? You still sin, but there are no besetting, repetitive, hidden sins in your life that are holding you back. God has brought you to a place of complete character where you can be honest about all of your life and honest about your faults. And when you get mature like that, you'll still grow a little every year, but it won't be as quickly as you were growing in your early years. A lot of times you can trace that point in your Christian life. When you get there to Christian maturity, 
That means you're the sort of person that we need looking down the chain and seeing who, who can I pull up the rope a little bit? Who can I bring along more if God has brought me to this place of maturity? That's who should do it. Mature Christians who are full of the Spirit. So the second question you might ask is, who should I mentor? Right? There's all kinds of people out there. Well, how do I narrow it down a little bit? And I think there are two things you need to look for. One is somebody who either trusts you or you think would trust you if you spent some time together. Uh, don't try to initiate that relationship with a stranger. It's strange. It would be, feel weird. Instead, earn their trust first. So somebody who trusts you. And secondly, somebody who is teachable. If you are dedicating time to just drill the truth into the heart of a young person, your words are gold to that person. You need to know that. And you can even say that to them. You can be that bold. If they don't treat your words at least as valuable as silver, you need to find somebody who's more teachable, who, who will get the most, as much as they can out of this sort of relationship. Find somebody who trusts you. Find somebody who is teachable. And if they don't, just go on to the next person. Don't waste your time trying to mentor somebody who will not listen to the teachings of the Bible. And finally, perhaps the most difficult question, the most common question asked, okay, we're ready to do this. What do you actually do? Like, how do, we, how do you pull it off? What do you do? Uh, the things that seem to be in common in the Bible are one-on-one -on -one relationships, regular contact. Sometimes it's one-on-two, usually one-on-one. -on -one, regular contact. A lot of times work together. And always the study of the things of God together. So, just meet regularly, the two of you or the three of you. Study the Bible together. And if you can find it, do a project together. Uh, maybe you're both into gardening and you want their help in the garden, so you go out and pull weeds together. Maybe you're a woodworker and they want to learn how to use a router with a little more skill, and so you do a woodworking project together. Whatever. The best thing to do, I think, find a project to do together. Study the Bible regularly together. And I think it's wise to set up a day of the week when you tend to meet together that keeps you in the regular habit and the regular practice of meeting together. You don't fall out of it that way. Just study the Bible, talk life, and work together regularly. And you'll be surprised at how much that individual attention makes a difference in their life. So let me ask you a question as we close this out. If we had two options before us, and one of us was to hold on this lawn a big, awesome Christian concert, like the kind of thing that we don't have the resources to pull off, get the best artists here, like have a big festival here for every young person in Greenwood that could come to, have a great time, worship Jesus together, just awesome event together. If we could pull that off and put $100,000 into it on one hand, imagine the effect that would have in their lives. And on the other hand, let's try to imagine the effect if every single person under the, between the age of 15 and 30 in our church had a mentor that was regularly meeting with them for five years. You got those two options. One big, awesome concert, five years of mentoring for every young person in our church. Which one's going to make a bigger difference in their lives? I think the mentoring's the one that's going to do it. And it's the one we have the resources to do in the first place. So let me tell you what I long for, my, my vision for us here. Uh, one of the questions we get asked by new people sometimes is, uh, what do you have for my children? And it's an honest question and a good question to ask. 
And usually our answer is, well, we have these teachers and we have these ministries and we have this event that happens on Wednesdays and things like that. We have things for your child to go to. And I do hope that we build that up more and we have more to offer in that way. But what I really want is this. I want the day to come when someone, a a new person comes in with a 15-year-old son and says, what do you have for my son? I would love to say, I've got 50 righteous adults who would love to mentor your son. I think that's what's going to make the difference in the raising up of young people in our church. And I pray that God brings that day. So let's pray together and let's ask for it.